This is an ABC podcast. You're travelling on what looks like a modern tram. You're in China. It's noisy, but only because of the excitement of the passengers. The vehicle itself is super quiet. It glides along. Hello, Anthony Vanell here. Welcome to Future Tense. You wanna disappear. Now, from the outside, it looks like light rail, but it's not. It's a new form of hybrid transport, and it's certainly left an impression on Curtin University's Peter Newman. Well, it's not a tram and it's not a bus. You can imagine that six innovations were taken out of high-speed rail by a rail company, put in a bus and converted it into something that's more like a train. So it runs and moves like a train, but it has hard rubber wheels on rail bogies and it has autonomous technology in it because you can't run a high-speed rail without autonomous. And it's got all of that in there. So it's guided optically by LiDAR and GPS. So it's very nerdy and really interesting in terms of its new technology. But it is, in fact, three buses joined together that run and move like a tram. And it looks like a tram, doesn't it? Or it looks like light rail. It really looks like it. And it's got all of those big windows. It's got lots of doors along it so people get in and out quickly. And my trial when I went to China was to see if kids could run up and down it without their parents grabbing them. So the experience is, if you're a passenger, is like being in rail. Absolutely. And you're doing 70 kilometres an hour along a road and it feels like you're on a train. A city in China has launched a test run for a futuristic urban transport system described as a cross between a train, tram and bus. The autonomous rail rapid transit is a 32-metre electric vehicle that runs at a maximum speed of... Just explain to us again, how does it actually move? It's autonomous. There are no rails, but it has a guide track, doesn't it? Yeah, the track on the road that you see is a little painted line and it has nothing to do with controlling it. It's controlled optically. So it's getting a signal from a satellite and occasional LIDAR systems that are in the street. But it's not something that is more than just programmed in. But it's very precise. So it goes into the stations one millimetre perfect. So it doesn't sway in like a bus does. It's perfectly aligned to enable wheelchair access and all of that sort of thing. Now, the trams that you looked at in China, how many passengers do they carry? They carry 300 is what they say. And that's quite a a high capacity vehicle doing 70 kilometres an hour. That really does carry a lot of people down a corridor. The New South Wales government is expanding Sydney's light rail network with a new project that will transform the city's public transport and deliver an estimated $4 billion in economic benefits. Beginning at Sydney's iconic circular quay... The installation of light rail always seems like such a good idea, if you're environmentally minded. But as the residents of cities like Sydney and the Gold Coast can tell you, it can take forever and be highly disruptive, and not in a good sense. So what are the main advantages that this new trackless tram system has over traditional urban transport systems? Number one, it's cheap. The Sydney light rail is costing $175 million per kilometre. The uh, Gold Coast 
light rail, 120. And that's because of the cost of the tracks as much as anything else, isn't it? Yes, it's tracks and the overhead wires. This is uh, battery-based electric. The batteries are sitting on the roof and you don't have to dig up the road and put rails in. And the digging up is a very expensive part of most of the systems that we have. And you can put it in in a weekend. Essentially, it is implementable very quickly, but it does all the things that a good light rail does. And with the station, you can recharge the batteries in 30 seconds or overnight in the depot. You can get a deep recharge. But essentially, it builds cities around it so that you can get good, easy access to a fast quality rail, which everyone is wanting now, but it does it at a tenth of the cost because the other systems are over 100 million per kilometre. This is 6 million per kilometre. And that includes the little station boxes that enable you to do the recharging and, and the easy access. The cost of putting down rails for that infrastructure, for light rail or for trams, means that there's a great deal of rigidity, isn't there, in the system. Does this offer greater flexibility in terms of routes? Yes, you can plan the routes a lot quicker and easier, and theoretically you can take them out as well. But that makes it more like a bus, because that's the great thing. They're flexible. There's nothing as flexible as a car, but buses are pretty flexible too, and that's part of the problem, because they then get stuck in traffic. This needs to go around traffic and have its own right-of-way, and it once you've planned it and put it in, you really do need to keep that fixed. But if there's an accident in the road ahead, you can press the button and the driverless vehicle, which will always have a driver because it's in mixed traffic, will go around that accident and get back on the track again. You've spent a, a great deal of your working life campaigning for trains and trams, haven't you? Does this technology change your attitude? Yes, it does change me because in 1979, I ran the campaign to save the Fremantle Railway and we won. And I ran five other campaigns since in terms of getting more rail back into Perth. Because you didn't think buses were an appropriate alternative for the no, future? No, the buses that they brought back in to replace the railway lost 30% of patronage immediately. So it, it was very obvious that people don't like travelling in buses as much as in a train. But what really motivated me is that the city builds up around train stations and enables people to walk there and easily not have to use a car. That doesn't happen with bus systems. You get a little bit around busways, but it's much harder because they're not attractive the Guangzhou bus rapid transit we went to in China, it's the biggest one in the world. And it's awful, the station areas, smelly and noisy and busy and just not attractive. Most of the new metro systems in Chinese cities, very attractive, full of people, full of activity and lots of real estate development around it. That's what I like to see in cities because you're not car dependent. So we started campaigns that were essentially saying, rail, not road. Then along came the trackless tram and said, well, we're in the road, but we're like a train. So I had to change. And it wasn't easy, but I have changed because it still does what I think cities need. And it does it at a tenth of the cost. So there you have it, the trackless tram coming to a station near you. There certainly seem to be a lot of advantages to this hybrid technology, but what, if any, are the downsides? The main issues, we need to trial it 
but I think it'll work. I, I don't see anything fundamentally that could go wrong, but the real issue will be it's in a road, so you have to make space for it to fit. If it's just winding its way through traffic, like uh, many trams do, it will be very slow. So the Melbourne trams, the average speed's about 19 kilometres an hour. It never really beats the traffic. So you take it for little journeys. But if you want to get down a corridor quicker than the traffic, and that's what we need, then you've got to provide a reasonable way through. There will be points along there where you'll be in mixed traffic, but mostly you've got to find your own space. And that's contentious. The reality is car drivers think that space belongs to them. Because it's battery powered as well, there are advantages, aren't there, in terms of clean energy? Yes, I imagine the station of the future will be covered in solar PVs and that will feed into the recharge system. There's probably a battery associated with that and the trackless tram will recharge at that point. But also the little autonomous shuttles that are around will be bringing people to the station they can recharge there as well. So we're essentially saying, yes, we've got a new transport system running off the sun. Peter Newman, Professor of Sustainability at Curtin University, thank you very much. Thank you. And I should also mention that Peter is the lead author for transport on the IPCC, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. You're with Future Tense. New ideas, new approaches, new technologies. I'm Anthony Fennell. Now, how do you tell the difference between a human being and a sophisticated piece of online software? Here's Charles Seif, Professor of Journalism at New York University. The Turing test is a thought experiment devised by Alan Turing, the famous computer scientist and mathematician. And he was wondering, at what point could it be said that machines start to think? At what point do they have consciousness? And he came up with an idea called the imitation game, where you would have a machine or a human isolated from an interrogator. And the interrogator would send questions into the room and the answers would come back. And if the interrogator couldn't, after a certain amount of time, tell the difference between a human and a machine, the question of the difference between the two becomes somewhat academic. And Turing concluded at that point that you might say that a machine was thinking. Charles Seif. A lot of work has been put into the development of online bots which mimic human interaction, and not always with malevolent intent. What is a bot? Put simply, bots are computer programs you typically interact with through written or spoken language that are meant to make your life a little easier. They take mundane tasks off your plate, such as reminding you to take an umbrella if it's going to rain, or to call your mom on her birthday. They can also take over other needlessly frustrating things like booking travel. Bots are now getting so advanced and convincing that a recent poll by the Pew Research Center in the United States found around half of the 4,500 Americans they surveyed said they now had trouble telling a bot from a real human when interacting on social media. Prior to becoming a journalist, Professor Seif was a mathematician researching artificial intelligence. So he's been watching the development of bots for a very long time. And he thinks we've now reached a curious tipping point. 
back in the 90s, one of the things that was always kind of fun to play around with was the attempt to convince other people that chatbots, that machines were human. And at the time, and still casting a big shadow over the whole field, is a chatbot called Eliza. And Eliza was a mock-up of a therapist, a psychologist, who was helping a patient get through a problem. And it was a very clever program that would echo back basically what the person was typing in in a slightly transformed way to make it look like there was a conversation. So a person might type in, I'm having problems with my father. And Eliza might say, tell me more about your father. And it was not terribly convincing, but it was interesting how far a computer program could get in imitating a human. And until fairly recently, I mean, no one would generally fall for a chatbot like that, that they were fairly obvious, that only in very, very extreme and prescribed circumstances would someone think that a bot was a human. But you believe, don't you, that it's now getting much more difficult to tell the difference between a bot and a a real human online? Yes, it is getting much more difficult nowadays. If you go online, if you go to Twitter, if you go to Facebook, it is really difficult sometimes to tell whether a particular account is a bot or human. If you have a following of any reasonable size, it's almost guaranteed that some of the followers, some of the people who are listening to you and sometimes even interacting with you are automated accounts. And as these programs become more sophisticated, it becomes harder to tell which is real and which is human. And it's not just because devices are becoming more sophisticated, the programs are getting better. It's that our conversations are changing over time as well. And the way our interactions are changing is making it easier for bots to imitate us successfully. So humans are sounding more like bots? Yes. If you look at a Twitter exchange, a lot of it is purely symbolic. You get a couple of emojis, a hashtag, and maybe a little comment or two. You retweet someone else's tweet, and that suffices to be an interaction of some sort. There's no grammar, there's no syntax, there's no deeper interaction that requires a human brain. And as we lower our expectations for what an exchange is, it becomes easier for these bots to just imitate it wholesale without being detected. What are the implications of that? Well, we're seeing the implications that a lot of our public discourse is being contaminated by bot accounts. A lot of what we say nowadays is mediated by these social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the like. And a lot of the interchange that happens on those sites is bot. And they are being used by various actors to amplify certain messages and to drown out others. Bots are being used for both purposes, for taking a message and implanting it and making sure it spreads, and also for drowning it out. So the difficulty in dealing with this is that, what, there's been a convergence, really, between bot and human behaviour online. Is that correct? Yes. If you look at genuine humans, people whom you know are not bots online, a lot of the time you, you think that they are behaving like bots. If you look at some standard metrics, some ways of telling what, whether someone's human or a bot, you look at how often they tweet or how often they post on Facebook. And if you are posting 24 hours a day every three seconds, it's pretty clear that you're a bot. If you post a couple of hundred times a day, you're either a bot or a somewhat obsessed human. And the number of people who 
who are kind of reaching that obsessed level, the number of people who are tweeting every few minutes or posting on Facebook every few uh, minutes, it's getting to a larger and larger proportion of us. As we spend more and more time online, as we do more of our interactions online, it's hard to separate the ones who are using the platform excessively and the bots who are firing out messages in bulk. Unfortunately, since it's hard for us on the outside to tell the difference between bots and humans, we're kind of victims for the moment. The people who really have the ability to control bot behavior are the owners of social media sites, and they have no incentive to do so. In fact, they're incentivized not to take care of the bot problem. Their advertising, their ability to generate revenue depends very much upon the size of their network, upon the number of people who are interacting, whether those people are real or not. And so bots generate revenue. And if you tighten your rules so that there are fewer bots or you reduce the ability of programs to fire automated messages into your platform, then in fact you are reducing your revenue. And that's a problem. The incentive is most stark in dating platforms. The value of your dating service is only as high as the number of people that are on it, especially with new dating platforms, which typically have a easier time attracting males than females, it is very difficult to kind of generate the critical mass to make your site take off. So if people create fake personae to pretend that there are lots of people on this, on this thriving site, of course the dating site is going to look away because it adds value to the network. And they are not public utilities. They are commercial entities trying to make a buck. And if making a buck means bots, they will do that. Is there a tipping point, though, where it becomes unpalatable for the public to deal with this level of artificiality online? I do think that it does become unpalatable after a certain point because if you don't know the reality of of the people you're dealing with, if a good proportion of the people you're dealing with are phony, obviously it's a turnoff. Of course, that depends on our ability to detect phonies. And it also depends on the availability of an alternative. And that is part of the problem. Facebook has gotten away with a lot of what it does is because it's essentially a monopoly that a network of a certain size gets very difficult to replace by its nature because you can't compete with that inertia. And so even though there have been attempts to do open source Facebook and attempts to replace Twitter, this is unfortunately an area where the first to get a certain critical mass beats out everyone and has a moat which keeps anyone else from crossing and threatening your network. So, yes, I think people are annoyed. I think a lot of people are annoyed, particularly with Twitter or Facebook, about what is going on and the, the nature of discourse on their platforms. But without a viable alternative, people don't want to give up their ability to contact their friends in the way they're used to. And as you mentioned, people are behaving online or communicating online in a style that resembles bot communication. What does that then mean for the Turing test in the future, going back to that particular test? Turing always imagined that the Turing test would be passed by computers getting smarter and smarter and better and better to the point where we couldn't distinguish a really good computer from a really smart human. I think that Turing would be surprised as to what has happened since. I think that what's going on is that 
computers are, I mean, they're getting better, but not at the rate that we would expect. And human discourse is getting easier and easier to mimic. That in some level, our informational content of our exchanges are, is decreasing, putting it within the range of bots. So bots are passing the Turing test. It's not because the computers are getting smarter, but because we're getting dumber at some level. And just on that, why are we heading that way? Why are humans adapting their communication online in the way that you say? Well, I think it's a culture, in part, that dictates the way we behave online. That Twitter, by its nature, by its very structure, was trying to get us to speak in short tidbits. And that, of course, lent itself to a language of itself, to shorthand, to its own structure for communication. Similarly, when we text, we're typing with our thumbs, which isn't as efficient as typing with a whole keyboard. So we tend to type short. We have shortcuts that are meant to express our ideas, but in a very, very concise way. And after a certain point, abbreviations just become cliched ticks. We are almost kind of entering an era where we kind of twitch and wink at each other and call it a day rather than having a deep conversation. Media academic Charles Seif, who's been pondering the future of digital discourse. Finally today, an update on a form of technology that we've covered several times on the program in the past, the solar road. There is a, a project in the, in the United States called uh, Solar Roadways, which consists of uh, concrete slabs, uh, including uh, the solar cells plus uh, tempered glass on top of it. There's a quite similar project in the Netherlands uh, called uh, Solar Road. A section on a, on a cycle path was built about one year ago, but it's um, large concrete slabs, uh, which means that in fact you're completely rebuilding a road. Our technology is different in that way that, uh, in fact, we just place our solar panels on an existing pavement. It does not require uh, all that amount of preliminary uh, works. Well, the, the idea of the solar roadway is we convert the roadways into, well, basically giant solar panels. It's a very visual project. I mean, a solar panel on a roof or in the middle of a desert somewhere, it's generating lots of power, but no one can see it. Whereas a road you can drive on, and particularly if you've got an electric car, it's like you're driving and you're getting power at the same time. Dr Dylan Ryan is a lecturer in mechanical and energy engineering at Edinburgh Napier University in Scotland. And he's been crunching the data on various solar road experiments that have been underway in both Europe and North America. The reality, he reports, hasn't matched the promise. If you're putting a solar panel in a road, first of all, there's the issue that you're not going to get the right, correct tilt angle to the sun. Your panel has to kind of face the sun, and of course the sun is moving. And that's going to cost you a certain amount of energy, just because of the fact that it's very unlikely the road is going to be oriented correctly. There's also refractive factors that you're using a thicker glass, that's less energy getting to the PV. Probably the big one is shading, though. Solar panels and shading do not go together. Solar panel gets shaded. General rule of thumb, for every 5% of the panel shaded, you will lose 50% of the power. So it's very crucial. This is, again, why we prefer to put solar panels up high on rooftops, because we want them free of shade. And then there's things like uh, soiling, if they get dirty. I mean, even solar panels in power station scenarios and fields will be washed from time to time. And finally, there's heat. Solar panel on the road, it's going to get hot. In with that heat means you lose efficiency. The PV 
won't be as efficient at higher temperatures. Now, that's a problem for ones in fields of rooftops, but they at least have air circulating around them to cool the panel down. So you weigh up all those factors, you're looking at about, about theoretically 50 to 25% of performance you would get in a conventional solar scenario. And the data we're seeing is around about a third the performance. So within that ballpark. So one of the projects you looked at in your research was a showpiece solar roadway in Normandy in France, which was opened several years ago by the ecology minister, Seglin Royale. What were your findings there? I mean, it, it looks like a pretty good project and all the rest. It seems to be pretty professionally put together. But the problem is, is that uh, you do the maths on the how much it costs. It's costing about 10 times more per installed kilowatt than a commercial power station in France. Its cost is one-tenth that of the solar road, and it's producing three times more power. And it's worth noting that that power station is a fixed-array solar power plant. Fixed-array solar power plants don't tend to give the best performance. You can get better performance if you put the solar panels on a tracker and track the sun around the sky. I mean, I'm picking that plant not because it's the best power station in the world, but because it's representative of what you would expect from solar panels in that part of France. And unfortunately, the results say that you're getting significantly less power from the solar road. Now, putting roads to dual purpose is one of the selling points of the idea. But you've, again, done some calculations and and you estimate that the actual amount of roadway that could be converted, if you converted that into into solar roadway, you're still going to be at a disadvantage, aren't you? As opposed to just covering the tops of buildings, say, with solar panels. Yeah, I mean, the problem is the, the surface area of buildings and urban urban land is significantly larger than the surface area of roads. And even that is ignoring the fact that some roads just would not be suitable. There's large parts of the road network, they're in the middle of cities, so they're heavily shaded. They may be facing the wrong direction. You're on the north side of a hill, that road's hardly ever going to see any sunshine. You're in the countryside, but it's big trees going down either side of the road. There's probably, in truth, only a very small part of the network that would actually be suitable. And that means that even if they could bring those costs down and get that performance up of the solar roadways, it's really only ever going to be a niche market. Is it possible that the the right technology for solar roads just hasn't been found yet? Or, or do you think the whole idea itself is flawed? Well, I mean, it's... I do know several of my colleagues who are working on ideas related to solar power in roads, but the thing is they're putting the panels pretty much everywhere but the road surface. So they're putting the panels in the crash barriers, down the central reservation, as noise barriers down the side of the road, over the road. In fact, over car parks can be quite a nice idea in hotter countries because you can keep the cars shaded and cool. So in that sense, there are ways we can kind of have solar power and roads working together, but generally putting them underneath the road surface. I wouldn't say it's impossible, but like I said, the performance gains you would need, the improvement to that technology would need is a pretty tall order. And then you have to ask the question, if only a small fraction of the roads are going to be usable, is it worth investing all that money to try and find the answer? Because there are significant costs, aren't there, in constructing these panels and constructing the uh, technology needed to convert a road into a, a glass road, a solar road. Well, the problem with solar panels in general is It takes quite a lot of energy to manufacture a solar panel. And unfortunately, energy in our current world means carbon dioxide emissions. You're digging the raw material out of the ground, manufacturing the panel, and so on. Now, in a normal solar setup, so long as it's sitting there in the sun and it's getting lots of power, it will offset the carbon dioxide during its construction. Usually, uh, just to give you some sort of ballpark figure, solar panel will be about 20th to a 10th the carbon footprint of fossil fuels. Now, again, that's a broad range figure 
should be treated with caution, but they make sense. The problem then with a solar road, you're putting it in the roadway, it's generating significantly less power. Again, the project in France, which is one of the, one of the better performing ones, is three and a half times poorer performance than a conventional solar panel. Add on to the fact that how much energy are you and resources are using to make the solar roadway? Because if you're using more energy and resources, and I've seen some of the projects use thicker sections of glass to resist the weight of the cars, some worse are using toughened glass. Glass is a problem because glass is a very energy intensive material to manufacture. And toughened glass is worse because it's harder to recycle. In fact, most countries, it's not recycled at all. So it's inevitable when you factor this in, your carbon footprint of these solar road panels is going to be worse than it is for conventional solar. Hard to say exactly how much worse, but almost certainly a a good deal worse. Well, that's not what we want to hear. But a good reminder, I guess, that not every promising technology eventually makes the cut. Dr Dylan Ryan from Edinburgh Napier University in Scotland. That's Future Tense for another week, thanks to co-producer Karen Savanovitz and sound engineer Dave White. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.